No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, a profile of Browns defensive end Miles Garrett, whose recent actions surprised the people who know him best. Some kids had rather die than have any kind of exposure experience of poetry, but he was one of the few that jumped right into it. Writing is just something very creative and private for him. Plus, author Michael Powell explains the important role basketball plays in the Navajo community. I mean, they've been playing this for well over a hundred years, and it is absolutely the passion of the place. Chinle is a town where I was based of 3,500, and if it was any kind of a big game, they would have 5,000 fans there at night. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Michael Powell of the New York Times about his new book on basketball on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. But first, we start with perhaps the biggest story of the week, the Colin Kaepernick workout, which... I guess you could say went awry. It was supposed to be an NFL organized workout at the last moment. Uh, there were complications. I guess we could put it that way. And Kaepernick worked out, uh, under his own auspices. Our Howard Bryant, our frequent guest and good friend was covering, uh, the goings on and he joins us now. Howard, it's been, uh, it's been a busy week for Colin Kaepernick and, and for you personally as well. Uh, we're speaking now on Thursday and how are you wrapping your head around the events of last weekend and subsequently? Well, I think the bottom line, Jeremy, really is that a week later, we still have questions that simply have been unanswered, and it's really important to get those questions answered. As of a week ago today, the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, it was a Thursday, they had pretty much set the die in motion in terms of a workout in Flowery Branch, Atlanta, or Flowery Branch, Georgia, about an hour northeast of Atlanta at the Falcons uh, facility. However, what they hadn't done was work out the actual details of the workout itself. What were the parameters going to be? Who was going to be in what positions, et cetera, et cetera. And so the bizarre nature of what took place was on Tuesday, the NFL gave Colin Kaepernick's team mm. a two-hour take-it-or-leave-it offer to be in Atlanta on Saturday. But they had done this essentially without the buy-in of the 32 teams. And essentially, it appeared what was going to happen was that the teams, the, the teams being Kaepernick's team and the NFL office's legal team, were going to have some sort of rolling negotiation up until Saturday. I guess both sides fairly confident that they could get a deal done. Not necessarily the way to go when you've got so much animosity between these two sides for the past three years. Neither side had spoken since Kaepernick and the league had settled their collusion, settled their lawsuit in February. So they hadn't spoken in, what, eight months, nine months? Mm. And so as the week rolled on, 
detail after detail after detail became sticking point after sticking point. And by the time we got to Friday night, the Kaepernick team was beginning to feel very pessimistic that anything was going to happen. Yet they also didn't want to be caught in a situation where they went down there and they didn't want to be accused of sandbagging the event. They wanted to make sure that by the time they left Atlanta, there was some footage of Colin Kaepernick working out for the world. So they began mobilizing, looking for an alternate plan B location, calling school districts, calling, they called Georgia Tech. They were calling different places to see where they could hold a workout in case these negotiations broke down. Eventually, they had settled if things hadn't worked out at uh, the Charles R. Drew High School in Riverdale, about 10 minutes south of the Atlanta airport. And by Saturday morning, the workout was supposed to take place at 3 p.m. Saturday, by 11, 11.30, things were going even further south. And by, by 2.20, the Kaepernick team informed the NFL, even though while I was sitting out in front of the gate at the Falcons facility, NFL teams began, you know, NFL teams began arriving to the facility. Kaepernick's team had informed the NFL that they were not going to be attending and that they had planned, in, indeed, to go to Plan B, an alternate site an hour away. And that's where things broke down. Kaepernick's team went down to Riverdale. They did the they did their workout for about an hour from around 4.30 to 5.30 on Saturday. Eight NFL teams went down and watched the workout. The other 17 or so decided to skip it, including Hugh Jackson, who was supposed to be running the, the workout for the NFL. We're speaking with Howard Bryant, who's been covering the Colin Kaepernick workout and negotiations with the NFL for the last week and has been covering the Colin Kaepernick story now for more than three years. And and ultimately, Howard, what was, how do we put this, the straw that broke the camel's back, the ultimate sticking point that could not be surmounted? The ultimate sticking point was trust, really. It's, it's turned into a truth issue. He said, she said, but the bottom line was trust. And the Kaepernick team wanted to have their their own independent cameras filming the workout. The press was not allowed to attend, so the Kaepernick team felt like they were in real danger of having the NFL take and edit the raw footage to, to broadcast outlets that they, were, they, they didn't trust that the NFL wouldn't mm. just simply take an hour workout and break it down to his five worst throws or the, the mistakes that he may have made in terms of footwork or whatever, that he wanted the world to see the entire workout. He didn't want to be at the mercy of the NFL. The NFL, on the other hand, refused to allow them to have independent cameras. And with no media and no independent cameras, the Kaepernick team felt too exposed. And they felt like that was something they couldn't abide by. What about the waiver? Not just the injury waiver, which would indemnify the NFL if Colin Kaepernick got hurt during this workout, but would also prevent Kaepernick from pursuing litigation against the NFL based on anything that's happened since uh, the um, the settlement they reached back in February. Well, the Kaepernick team had no intention of signing that waiver that was so broad it would have essentially forfeited Collins' rights in case something took place at the workout. And what they were really afraid of, what the real deal was, it wasn't necessarily injury. It was... It, it was the post-workout interview that took place later. For example, mm. the real question was, obviously, every team in the league that had talked to Kaepernick was going to ask him, if we sign you, do you plan on kneeling? Mm -hmm. And if he had said yes, and then subsequently no team signed him, that may have 
produced an actionable offense. That might have been proof of collusion. Or if one team talked to him and he said he was going to kneel and that information got around to the other 32 teams, then had Colin Kaepernick signed that waiver, then he would have had no recourse for a second collusion lawsuit. I simply believe from what I've heard in terms of the reporting that that there was simply no trust between these two, that the that the that the Kaepernick team countered with just let's just get that language out of there and let's just do a standard injury waiver. And the NFL said no to that. And and between that and the videotaping, this whole thing fell apart. What we thought a week ago might turn into a story about the reconciliation of the NFL with Colin Kaepernick. Uh, a very much different story now as we consider it a few days later. Howard Bryant has been covering it for ESPN. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for joining oh, us. My pleasure. Thank you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. For his actions in a game against the Pittsburgh Steelers last week, defensive end Miles Garrett of the Cleveland Browns has been suspended indefinitely by the NFL without pay. Garrett reportedly argued in his appeals hearing this week that he was provoked by Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph and hit Rudolph on the head with a helmet only after Rudolph directed a racial slur at him. Rudolph categorically denies that accusation. A former first overall pick in the draft, Garrett, who'd been having a strong season, he was among the league leaders in sacks, was recently profiled by Ryan Smith for E60. Here's the first part of that story. Aimlessly, he walks among the mist. Unseen to most, he doesn't exist. I was a boy who wrote poetry with mama for other men who played football. Inside him lies a raging tempest. Fury quelled only by his fist. You would never think when he steps inside the white lines that a train wreck's fixing to happen. He's going to get hit. He's going down. He got hit in the pocket. He's going down. And guess who? There he is. Miles Garrett. His weapon of destruction and function without instruction. Judged by his production. Cleveland Browns defensive end Miles Garrett is among the most dominant pass rushers in the NFL. Coming in is Miles Garrett. A freak. Physically gifted. But his love for the game didn't come naturally. I, I didn't care for football. His level of intensity needed to match what that potential was. I played the game and I was good at it, but there was something you know, missing. Miles Garrett grew up in Arlington, Texas, the youngest of three kids. From a young age, he always seemed to be in search of something different, something bigger. Watching Jurassic Park when I was younger, just seeing those creatures you know, in action, at least in, in movie form, just, you know, I was awestruck as a kid, and I never found something that amazed me or drew me in like that did. As soon as he knew that the dinosaurs were in the dirt, he was going to look through all the dirt he could find. I got a shovel, and I dig a <laughs> hole that's probably four feet deep. 
going around the back. And it's two holes there. And I'm falling in holes because Miles, once again, is out there digging, exploring. Lawrence come in hobbling where he stumbled over or stepped in, the, in a hole wrong. And, you know, Miles is just like, I'm looking for dinosaur bones. He would find rocks and think they were teeth. <laughs> Garrett may have been focused on becoming a paleontologist, but avoiding sports wasn't an option. My mother's like, you can do everything, anything you like, do whatever makes you happy, but you're going to play some sports. He played like one year peewee football and it got hot in Texas and he dragged off that field and handed his dad his cleats and helmet and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I was playing football at that time, even though I really didn't want to, but at that time I, I really didn't care for football. I just, you know, I wanted to play running back. Oh, you can't play running back. You're too big. So I played off of the lineman. Definitely not for me. What was for Garrett, he was discovering in high school, was a love for poetry. My grandmother introduced it to me. I mean, she, she had written poems with me. Some kids, they'd rather die than have any kind of exposure experience of poetry. And so, but he was one of the few that jumped right into it. Writing is just something very creative and private for him. As a freshman, Garrett decided to give football another chance. I can probably count on one hand the amount of student athletes that I've had that are into poetry. And that's what I saw when I was saw him sitting in my class. He was an old soul. Uh, you didn't see a lot of kids who were athletic, so I'm um, in the, the poetry club. In high school, I, I kind of, uh, I was kind of lost. Did you think that poetry and athletics were two different things that you either do one or the other and they don't really mix? It was just like... I played the game and I was good at it, but there was something you know, missing. It was kind of that uh, that passion for the game. So it was kind of hard to you know put those two things together for a while to you know be you know, okay in my own skin. By his sophomore year, Garrett had grown to six foot three, two hundred and ten pounds. His physical gifts were undeniable, but his coaches. We're looking for more. I felt like he had great potential. And really, the sky was the limit in regards to what he could do. But his work ethic and his level of intensity every day at practice needed to match what that potential was. They saw something in him. So you're either going to put your heart in it or you're not, but you're going to stop wasting people's time. And we just laid it all on the line. Or you can bring your hips home on the bus. He started to realize real quick how talented he was. That kind of opened his eyes a little bit. He, you know, just seeing that and hearing it from us just really stuck home to him. It took a day of kind of reflection, you know. It was, you know, sit down and thinking, no, do I really want this? Do I really want to play football for all my life? And they said, no, if you really want this, then you have to go get it. You know, you could be one of the best. You could be the best player in the nation. That conversation made him embrace I have the permission now to step on heads. That challenge to become the best was all the motivation Garrett needed. The following season, he doubled his sack total and drew national attention. It was interesting. After you know, I saw him a couple of games. You know, again, him coming in class is just going. So who is this kid? You know, he he sits down. He's quiet. He you know he does all his work. It's great. And here he is, just you know, 
wrecking shop every chance he gets in the football field. He was relentless with his effort, which now matched his freakish athletic ability and size and speed and strength. When I say make a difference, I'm talking about within three or four plays, it's, it's game over. By 2014, Garrett was a five-star recruit. At six foot four, 240 pounds, he was the nation's top-ranked edge rusher. Miles' recruitment, I mean, it was a circus. We had 15, 20 college coaches here uh, on any given day. Miles just exploded on the scene. You know, the guy's the number one player at his position, maybe one number one player in the country. Uh, that's one thing. But when you see him in, in person, you knew he was going to be successful. If I'm going to make my commitment right now, I'm going to make it to Texas A&M. Yeah. As a freshman at Texas A&M, Garrett broke the SEC record with 11 and a half sacks. By the end of his junior year, he declared for the 2017 NFL Draft. He's got speed, he's got strength, work ethic, he's got it all. There was no doubt in my mind that he was going to be the first player picked in the draft. But another Hall of Famer wasn't convinced. A few days prior to the draft, Warren Sapp made these comments about Garrett. I see a lazy kid that makes four plays a game. This is the number one guy? Four days after Sapp's comments, Garrett and his mother took to social media. What's your response to Warren Sapp's comments? Is this irrelevant? Oh. Hey, mother. Is he still relevant? I, I repeat it. Is, I, is he still? I, mm. no, so you don't want me to answer because that mean streak in me comes out. It's one thing if you want to critique him as a player based on his skill set. To me, Warren stepped over the line and came at my child as a person who you don't know. And his relevancy towards how we raised our son, you need to check yourself. Garrett's talent was undeniable, but as the draft approached, his passion for the game was still being called into question. Say what you want. I mean, doubt me, disrespect me, say whatever you like, but I'm going to prove you wrong at the end of the day. April 27th, 2017. Cleveland, Ohio. The Browns hosted an NFL draft party as fans await the announcement of the team's number one pick. Well, we gotta go. We gotta go, Garrett, number one. Miles Garrett, number one, no matter what. Number one, Miles Garrett. That's it. Twelve hundred miles away in Arlington, Texas, a poetry-loving, fossil-digging defensive end was waiting as well. Have you heard from the Browns yet? Not yet. But questions remained about Miles Garrett's commitment to the game. I heard a lot of media pundits talk about that. How does he feel you know, about the about actually playing football? Is he actually passionate about it? You know, is he going to get too caught up in his other interests? Man, I just thought that was silly. The pick is in. Let's go to Commissioner Goodell. Yo, I'll hear the call. 
They said they were going to pick me, but I don't see anything ringing. And then I, I, my mother tasked me. She's like, With the first pick, the Cleveland Browns select Miles Garrett. If I'm worthy of the, the first pick, that means they think I'm good enough to change this thing around. But that didn't happen. Garrett missed the first four games of his rookie season with an ankle injury. His NFL debut came in week five. First game, first play, Jets. First sack. Back to pass, and they're going to get a sack, and it's Miles Garrett right away. And it was kind of like a, a old moment. <laughs> wow. And he came right up the gut. Yo, we're going to win this. That's how I heard about like, we're all on four, we're winning this. We were just like... Get up in there, son. But were we ever expecting 0-16? No. Here comes the pressure. He doesn't see it. He loses the football. The Browns became only the second team in NFL history to go winless in a 16-game season. It was draining. It's it's a different feeling when like, you feel like you're fighting for nothing. Cleveland's losses continued into 2018. By midseason, head coach Hugh Jackson was fired. What was it like playing for Hugh Jackson? Uh, it was different. Uh, he was, I wouldn't say he was the, the, the greatest leader. And I feel like he was, you know, he tried to be, you know, friends with us more than sometimes the best, the best leader or coach. You see him trying to do other things to compensate mentally, to not focus on the losses. What motivates you to write poetry? When I'm going through something or I see something, you know, it kind of just you know, hits you. It never, it's never something just I, I need to go write. And you, know, you just have to force it. You just let it you know, flow through. You just like anything else. How active are you with your poetry right now? I try to get one or two every couple of days. Do you ever write about football? I mean, oh, no. When I get out of football, I'm out of football. Now in his third season, Miles Garrett has learned to be the quiet guy on a team that this offseason became much louder. You add Odell Beckham. You got Jarvis Landry, you got Baker Mayfield. You, how do you fit in with these other stars? I don't. I mean, those are my teammates. I love them, do anything for them, but I don't really fit in with them. I'm an introvert who has moments of extrovert in him. But for the majority, no, we're just we're just different. Like he said himself, he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't really fit in with them. You know, guys like Miles are kind of like that silent assassin, kind of just really quiet. But then when it's time to go, like he's ready to go. For a kid that grew up not liking football, the 23-year-old is now an all-pro, arguably the best pass rusher in the NFL. Miles Garrett is just as comfortable crushing quarterbacks 
as he is penning poems. Beside him lies a raging tempest, fury quelled only by his fist. His heart runs on empty, filling the smiles of many. His poetry gives people a way to see him in a different light of, these are the things that are going on in my life, these are the things that I feel. He's not scared to be himself in the sense of, I know that football is not the end for me. The paleontology, the, the writing, the reading, all the passions that I had before football were, were developed long before I even you know, had that interest for you know, playing the game. And that's, that's who I've always been. And I, I don't lose that because you, know, you only get this journey once. Ryan Smith reporting. Thursday afternoon, it was announced that Garrett had lost the appeal of his indefinite suspension. At a minimum, he's been banned from playing for the rest of the season. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Michael Powell is a sports columnist at the New York Times. He used to cover the world beyond sports, and his new book, Canyon Dreams, is a sports book, but it's set against the backdrop of a unique part of the world, the sprawling Navajo Reservation in northern Arizona, where basketball has long played an outsized role. Canyon Dreams, a basketball season on the Navajo Nation, has just been published, and it is a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life, Michael Powell. Michael, thank you for being with us. Oh, sure. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Why this book? I mean, you're a New York sports writer. You're a New York guy. You spent a lot of time uh, covering national sports for the Times, but around uh, the New York locker rooms and clubhouses and and stadiums. Uh, This uh, is farther afield. This is definitely further afield. This is about when you're on the Navajo Reservation, which is enormous. It's like the size of, not like the size, it is the size of West Virginia. Um, You feel as far, as far away as you can get in the United States. Um, And it's, you know, I think what appealed to me was kind of precisely that. I mean, you know, that, that you had, this was a place where, you know, some very American themes uh, play out. I mean, you know, do you stay at home? Do you go? That tension, which is felt profoundly there. Um, the style of ball, which is, you know, in a strange way, very kind of au courant. I mean, they play this sort of, if you will, kind of a golden state, you know, old Phoenix Sun style of play, very mm-hmm. res ball, this incredibly fast paced sport that goes back. I mean, they've been playing this for well over a hundred years. Um, and it is absolutely the passion of the place. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you go, Chinle is a town where I was based of 3,500. And if it was any kind of a big game, they would have 5,000 fans there at night. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's a passion play for the, for the kids, the adults, everybody you describe in the book uh the style of basketball that is played the passion for the game there what well, why does basketball mean so much on this 17 million acre reservation you know i think a lot of it is sort of rooted in culture there i mean they have a very it's a very communal culture 
with these kind of, you know, very big extended families and clans and the great emphasis in Resball um, is on working, you know, this sort of working as a unit and running and running and running and running is also um, an enormous part of actually all Southwestern Indian cultures. I mean, it was in their time before the horse, the way they got around. And to this day, they're the runners from either Navajo or Hopi, any of the reservations down there always rank among the very top distance runners in those states and sometimes in the nation. So it kind of combines those two passions. And they were also forced um, by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. This was you know, 50, 60 years ago, they were forced to go to these boarding schools um, far, far away from their families where they were refused the ability to speak Navajo. They literally had their mouths washed out with soap. Mm. And, in a, and they learned basketball there, though. <laughs> and in a weird way, or not in a weird way, in a, in, a, in a sort of moving way, they turned basketball into kind of their own cultural expression. When we do stories, when you write a book about um, any Indian reservation, there is a legacy there, uh, the history, of course, of, of what what happened to Native Americans over the course of hundreds of years with the expansion of um, the American footprint, the United States footprint. Well, how, how does the legacy, how do we, how did you feel and experience that legacy covering life on this reservation? I mean, look, the history, history is very, much alive there. Um, and people know, uh, I mean, they know the story of their fight against, uh, you know, Kit Carson and, you know, the American um, military, you know, the army. Um, they know of their resistance. They were forced into a long march off. I mean, all of, and, and then went through a, you know, a tough, hard, sad, but ultimately successful fight to get it back. And all of that is very alive. I mean, you'll walk up canyons with Navajos and they will, you know, they'll point out, you know, the sites of ancient battles against, you know, the Americans and where they hid and all this sort of thing. At the same time, they're, in an interesting way, I mean, they are very proud Americans, right? I mean, they they sign up for the military at a rate well beyond, you know, the average uh, American. I mean, the percentage of them that do that. Um, and they take a lot of, you know, kind of pride in that they're both Navajos and Americans and that this that theirs is an American story. Um and this isn't like a cliche. I mean, I, this would come up a lot in talking. So it's an interesting kind of duality that, that you hear. I mean, there's a, a real, as I say, just a real awareness of the, you know, kind of the brutal aspect uh, of their collision um, with our, you know, expansionist culture. And, you know, and I guess actually the other thing is that it's playing out in ways that are discomforting to them to this day. When I was there 25 years ago, there was no TV. You know, there was only Navajo really language radio. Um, now, of course, they have everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has or not everybody, but many kids have, you know, Internet access. And 
that, you know, the way in which the kind of broader culture now, like a tsunami, is kind of pushing and washing over them. Uh, and if you were kind of messing with, you know, kind of, you know, long time kind of cultural aspects of their life in uh, their language is, you know, that's very real. And, it, and they're all kind of struggling with that, whether it's in a, you know, in a inchoate way or, in a, you know, in, in ways that they'll talk about with you. So it's, it's a complicated time to be there right now. We're speaking with Michael Powell of the New York Times about his new book, Canyon Dreams, a basketball season on the Navajo Nation. And, you know, as a journalist, and, and this is this is what you do, this is what you've done so well for so long, but how do you approach going into a place, you know, as we, you know, we sometimes say, parachuting in, spending a good deal of time there, um, but a limited amount of time uh, in the grand scheme of things, yep. and then coming away writing a book about an entire culture. How how do you how do you get comfortable enough um, in that situation to do what you have done, which is produce a remarkable book, but but still one coming from someone outside that culture? Sure, and no, that's a great question. And I mean, it's one that I, I assume all of us, right, when we do these sort of books, you wrestle with, and I mean. You know, I think one thing I try to do is tell the stories as much as possible through, you know, the voices of the people I'm talking to. You try to find people, and I did, you know, who were very, you know, from medicine men to the athletic director to the coach who really understand that culture and, you know, frankly, lean heavily um, on them. And then the other is, you know, I mean, I had gone there. 25 years ago, my wife had worked there a couple of months as a, um, a midwife at the Indian Health Service Hospital. And, you know, the place had really kind of gotten, in the very best sense of the word, kind of curled under our skin and, you know, sort of remained with us. So I've always wanted to go back there. I've, and, and I had done several stories. And a lot of it, you know, it is it was just, you know, getting there and like slowing down, you know, my Anglo reporter mind <laughs> long enough to just kind of sit with it, right? Give mm -hmm. people time to get used to me, to get comfortable that I'm not just parachuting in and I'm not going to, you know, get a quick take and split uh, and trying to get, you know, like as I did, as people were incredibly generous, so they invited me to, you know, family cookouts and this, uh, you know, where you could really just have a chance to talk and to watch. And, you know, I tried to go to ceremonies where I could and, you know, you just, but, but having said all of that, I mean, I would never <laughs> present myself as, you know, an expert in that culture. I was, you know, I, I had the privilege of being a guest there and of observing. And I hope you know, getting at a certain truth there. But I mean, you know, inevitably, I'm not, you know, I'm not Navajo. Is, is basketball, and I know this um, analogy has been made by others, um, talking about basketball on reservations and, uh, and about your book, is basketball for the Navajo reservation what football is in Western Pennsylvania or in Texas? I mean, it is, you know, it's funny. I read, of course, 
Buzz Bissinger's great book, you know, Friday Night Lights. And this, it is, I mean, it, basketball occupies the same place. In fact, actually, as one assistant coach said to me, he said the biggest, said, you know, what are the five biggest sports on Navajo? And he said they're basketball, 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 <laughs> rodeo, or rodeo, 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 basketball. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're just, yes, I mean, it is just, You'll sit, I mean, it was kind of funny. You'd sit in the stands, you know, and I'd talk to grandmothers, grandfathers who, A, had both, had all played for teams. B, had this really sophisticated sense of, you know, basketball. I mean, they would talk about having watched Bill Walton or, Hmm. you know, Cowan's play. And and, and they would, you know, the, the stuff they would yell at the kids was like, you know, set a you know set a low pick i mean it, it was it was pretty sophisticated stuff it wasn't just go go wildcats um no it's it's a it is really a passion play on the reservation michael powell's new book is canyon dreams a basketball season on the navajo nation and it's clearly obviously about much more than basketball michael thank you so much for joining us and discussing this terrific oh, thank book. you jeremy i appreciate it Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.